Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 40 of Theatre Forward. 40! So this week's conversation was inspired by the recent marking of the centennial of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, giving women, well, some women, the right to vote. So that prompted us to ponder the work still needed within our industry to truly achieve gender parity. Where has progress been robust and where do we still have much more to do? And Julie, I'd really love to start this conversation with you because you spent um, really quite a few years building Renaissance Theater Works in Milwaukee. And tell us a little bit about Renaissance. Yeah, I was there, you know, a couple decades. Uh, (laughs) Renaissance Theater Works uh, was founded in 1993. It is uh, the second oldest theater company focusing on gender parity. Um, And, you know, the idea was strong women's roles on stage and off. Um, at the time, that um, was an unusual uh, approach to theater, which I, you know, find fascinating right now in 2020. Um, I looked at the statistics in 1993, 17% of the country's playwrights were women. 11% of all the directors uh, were women. And 6% of all professional theaters were run by women. Um, <laughs> I think that the stats have gotten a little bit better, but really not much. You know, in 2015, it was 22% playwrights um, were women. So uh, we've still got some work to do, but uh, there are a lot of really great things happening. And more, more than anything, there's an awareness of when the 50-50 is not happening where the gender parity is falling short. And um, I think Renaissance exposed that in Milwaukee and in the state. I think that even if people, if companies are not working towards this, this parity, they're aware of where, um, where the deficiencies lie. Um, I remember years ago, I had a young woman who was very angry at a, um, a theater company that um, had just, uh, unveiled their new season. And she said to me, oh my God, did you see there's hardly any women playwrights or directors? And I said, there isn't, that's true. And I am so happy you noticed that. And mm-hmm. isn't that the big thing that you have to notice first to make the change? And we certainly are noticing. Yeah. We're yeah. noticing, but you know, being the greedy maximalist that that you've all you know and love on this podcast, and Julie, what you said is right. I mean, it's like that was twenty seven years ago, and we're still looking at really, really bad numbers. Where mm-hmm. Renaissance in this state, and I include Forward in what I'm mm-hmm. about to say, is the only equity house in the entire state that has achieved gender parity over its production history. Um, and even with Renaissance, it was under gender parity until a couple of years ago um, when, uh, you know, it's been producing almost all women 
playwrights in the last few years. Now I'm only talking about on stage, but it, it drives me a little nuts when to my mind by far in this country and in Britain, the best playwrights, cat, cat interlude, the best across <laughs> uh, our screen, the best, the best playwrights that we have writing right now are women by and large. I mean, of course these, you know, there's, there's lots of good stuff coming from everywhere and the, that we are still not at, gender parity or that we even have to talk about it in 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 the ways that we do just it it floors me and it really makes me think that we're at a point where we need something akin to affirmative action or a quota system where we need theater companies to step up and make a, a public commitment to producing at least 50 percent plays by women over you know expand so that you know maybe in a particular season you know, there'd be wiggle room, but maybe over a five-year period, there would be a commitment that at least 50% plays would be by women. I mean, Jeanette Rankin, when she was elected to Congress in, in, in 1916, got it exactly right. If we're half the population, we should be half the Congress. Well, damn it, if more than half the plays and way more than half the plays in terms of quality are being written by women, then that's what we should be seeing on American stages, and we're not. There is such good work out there. And it, you know, when you think about um, the number of, of women playwrights that have prominence now. You know, a number of years ago when the Kilroys began, and for those who don't know, the Kilroys was a, a collective that was basically identifying plays by women out there that weren't getting adequately produced. And it was sort of um, similar to, uh, uh, oh God, uh, Rachel Shafkin's um, comments at the Tony Awards last year, like there's a pipeline, stop pretending there's not a pipeline. There's plenty of people out there that you can hire. And so the Kilroys uh, started this list of women playwrights in response to, you know, oh, well, we would produce more plays by women if we knew what they were, right? Um, Don't exist. Right, right, right. But the difference now is that there are, there are so many really prominent women playwrights in America whose work is being done. When you look at the, um, the TCG's uh, top 10 plays of the year and top 20 most produced playwrights of the year, those numbers are going, are going way up. Um, there's many, there's more women than men. Right. In 2018, eight of um, 11 of the most produced plays were by women. Yeah. So it, it happens. Right. And there's these, you know, incredible playwrights. And I'm just, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, you've got Heidi Schreck, you've got Amy Herzog, uh, Katori Hall, Dominique Mariso, Lauren Gunderson, Ann Washburn, Annie Baker. I mean, these are all phenomenally exciting playwrights. And no um, informed artistic director could say they, they weren't aware of, of the work by these women anymore. Um, and you're, you're very right to point out, Mike, that even, even at Forward, where you know, I think we clearly take uh, gender equity very seriously, we haven't hit over our 11-year history to date. We're at, I think, 41% of the main stage plays Which have is been written by women. Almost yeah, I mean, it's almost double the national average, but it's still not at parity. And that is, that's a problem. Well, and of course, when you, when you look at, you know, plays by women of color, uh, you know, it's it's dramatically worse. I mean, two mm -hmm. years ago, six percent of the plays in this women were produced by women of color. And it's, you know, it's Dominique, it's it's Lynn Nottage, it's Jocelyn Beale, it's Aziza Barnes, it's, you know, um, Jacqueline Jackie, Sibley, yep. Jackie mm -hmm. Sibley's jury. I mean, you go on and on. 
and and yet the plays are not getting um, are, are are not getting done. And I think that intersectionality between between gender and race, which you alluded to, Jen, in your very first comment, in terms of how the Nineteenth Amendment and the, the movement itself shafted women of color, is really important in terms of keeping in mind that that's an additional challenge that we are not um, meeting in an adequate way. Yeah, and I realized I said Rachel um, Shefkin and meant Rebecca Teichman, so that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I meant Rachel Shefkin. It was Rebecca Teichman who won for. Anyway, now I'm getting all tangled up in my you know brilliant women directors. Oh my God, we all look alike. That's. <laughs> um, but that actually sort of that segues to me into you know maybe. Uh, a corollary issue that is maybe more near and dear even to, to my heart, which is women directors. Um, mm -hmm. Because coming up in, uh, in the theater, spending most of the 90s and the first half of the 2000s in New York, working in the commercial Broadway and off-Broadway theater, just weren't women get, getting hired as directors. There just weren't. You could count them on hand. You know, what was it? The first uh, Tony Award um, for woman director wasn't until 1998. And it was two won that year, Julie Taymor and Gary Hines for musical and play. Uh, but that wasn't, I mean, there, I, I counted it up last night. There've been over 130 Tony Awards given for best director and nine of them have gone to women. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and you look at, and this comes out of that women that really, I thought terrific playbill um, women's women's centennial uh, celebration, um, which went through the last hundred years celebrating women in theater. I, I have to be honest, and I consider myself fairly well versed in theater history. I was embarrassed by how many people all the way through. I can't even just sort of hide behind saying I didn't know some playwright in the twenties. How many people I didn't know? How many shows I didn't know? How much of this great work that's being done by women is stuff that I don't know? And I and I follow this stuff. So, uh, you know, what does that say about maybe it's because I'm a guy? Maybe. I think it's because this stuff isn't being out there. But some of the statistics in that, Jen, in terms of the Tony thing, no black woman has yet won for best play, best book, best score, best director. No woman of Asian descent. Um, has yet won for, for best director. No Latinx woman has yet won for best play, best book, or best score. Yeah. So, it, which is just, you know, again, it does, it compounds the issue um, that, that you're pointing to. You know, 37% of off-Broadway directors and designers are women. Now, that's actually better than most of the country, but yeah. that's a third. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and, and if we pivot away from, if we pivot back away from Broadway and think about regional theaters, I mean, Julie, I think you and I, it'd be interesting to talk about our perspective on this because um, on the one hand, uh, the percentages of women leading regional institutions, whether as artistic directors, managing directors, um, it, I mean, it's much better than it was you know, in the statistics you were citing from when Renaissance began, uh, but still really low. On the other hand, here you and I are, we run our company. And, and it struck and Wisconsin me- Wisconsin oh, is yeah. doing okay. That's exactly what I was gonna say. You know, when I did move back here after my, my time in New York and was sort of looking at the, the professional theater community around me, I was like, well, 
there's a fair number of women leading these organizations. And those numbers have gotten much better in, in recent years, um, not just with Forward, but with um, American Players Theater and the ascension of Brenda DeVita as their artistic director um, here in Madison, Children's Theater of Madison, you know, their right. artistic director, Roseanne Sheridan, the Madison Opera here is led by Catherine Smith. I mean, there's, it's really in this sort of pocket. <laughs> We've got a lot of women leadership. And it's sometimes easy for me, even as a woman, to forget how big a problem it still is nationwide, because I feel like we're in this this little, you know, I'm not going to call it a utopia, because there's still a lot of um, lack of parity. Work to be done. A lot yeah. of work to be done. But there, there are a, a large number of women in leadership positions. And that's that's great. But I'm wondering, Julie, you know, have you encountered um, have you experienced the, the the trajectory of your career as one in which you encountered a lot of barriers or was that not as much uh, the case for you? Uh, I know that when um, Renaissance was just starting out, there was this idea by saying, we're a woman's company focusing on gender parity. There was some um, inference that this had become political, that um, I, I, we were angry women. Um, we had to, in those first 10 years, I felt that I was continuously saying ridiculous things like, but we still hire men. We still like men. I mean, really, truly had to, I mean, it, it makes me sound like I'm 110, but this wasn't that long ago that we were apologizing for that. We were apologizing for saying we're 50% of the population and we should be 50% of the people who get employed in theater. So that was an uphill battle for a long time. And, um, and it is not so much of an uphill battle. I mean, I don't know that um, certainly when I was hired as managing director at Forward, I don't think there was even a ripple that now there's two women that are, you know, leading this theater company. Um, I, I don't think that even that registered. And no. that's, that's pretty great. Can I, can I tell you a story? It's one of my very favorite stories that we say, we used to, I think still do talk about at forward at, um, sorry, at Renaissance. It has nothing to do with Renaissance, but it's a really great. <laughs> Please. Uh, so in 1952, the Boston Symphony was predominantly men. And the idea was that there's just men are better musicians. And the Boston Symphony said, is that really true? I'm not sure about that. And they had blind auditions and they put the musicians behind a screen. And for the first year, the majority, it was majority men, went, went to the next level. And then the following year, they made everyone take off their shoes. <laughs> and you couldn't hear the high heels behind the screen. And it became 50-50. And you look at orchestras now, and they're, they're, they're pretty, uh, the gender parity is there. Um, and... I don't know how we would do that in a similar vein with playwrights <laughs> or, you know, do you have a director behind a screen just giving, here's how I'd like to do this show without a voice or, you know, how, how do we do blind casting for that kind of thing? Right. Casting is almost impossible. 
that I love that story. I mean, casting's, yeah. casting's hard, but it does make me think of um, a statistic I was pulling recently, you know, at Forward, we have our main stage shows. And as I said before, in our 11 years, uh, the 41% of those of our writers have been women. But when I look at, um, we do a new work festival every single season, two different festivals of different kinds of work, but they alternate, but 11 seasons of new work. And I looked at that and those do, we do read those submissions and evaluate them blind. You know, at the end of the process, we look at who wrote those. But for, for both of those, we, we have open submissions and they're evaluated blind. And 51% of our writers of all the new work we've produced have been women. So maybe right. that's the equivalent. That's our equivalent of the screen. Uh, of that story. Yeah. It, uh-huh. And it's harder to do. I, I will say, and you're right, there, there was no, um, having been on the other side of the process, when you got hired as managing director, there was, there was no pushback on, oh, well, should, if, if we've got Jen, maybe we should hire a man to be managing director. You know, there was none of that. But there's certainly been times, you know, Forward's 11 years old. For our first nine seasons, we did three shows a year on our main stage and I would direct two of them for cost reasons as much as anything else. And we would hire one guest director. Now it's half and half. I do two and we have two guests. Um, but for the first several years, I, we were hiring women to direct as the guest directors. And there was some pushback from various uh, places of you need to hire some, some men directors. And I, I did recall thinking, do I? <laughs> but really, is it really a problem that 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 these men are not getting hired at this particular theater right now, when everywhere else around me, <laughs> life is no, tough that's on white men. I don't know what to tell you. Jane. I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry, you I'm know, not I, getting that across to you. That's all right. Well, and we have obviously <laughs> hired quite a few men to direct at Forward over these eleven years, but I was looking, and again, I skewed the numbers because I'm directing half or more of what we do, but. Our directors have made it something like 88%, you know, and that's, um, that is certainly not reflective regionally, but, it, but what is exciting, I do think we're seeing um, a, a really fabulous new wave of artistic directors at major regional theater companies um, who are women and women of color. Right. Um, and, and it's thrilling to watch someone like Hannah Sharif at St. Louis Rep. Um, Maria Guyanis at Willie Mammoth, Nataki Garrett at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I mean, to see what those women in those leadership positions uh, may achieve in the coming years uh, is, is really exciting. And of course, mm-hmm. we know that the, the deck can be stacked uh, against women when they take over a, a major organization, and especially for women of color. Um, but I'm hopeful that in this moment, when our entire field is re-examining our, our biases and our lack of equity, that that will lead to increased support rather than decreased for, for the leadership of these women. Um, so I, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic. I'm not, I'm not feeling you know, pessimistic about what the future holds. I'm, I'm excited and hoping that we see faster movement towards parity in the coming years. Well, I think it I think it will come. I mean because it has been stuck. It's gone a little bit for honest to god 100 years. We're right. talking about the women's, you know, um a right to vote. Uh the statistics of playwrights of women playwrights hasn't changed that much yeah. in 100 years. 
But I do think that women in charge of companies, um, I do think more, the more directors, the playwrights is the critical element here. Women playwrights write more women's roles. But, you know, those, the stories they tell are different. And that's, that's the key right there is, is, are the playwrights. And it changes the dynamic of everything then yeah. on stage. And I'd love to see um, more and more um, women in the pipeline for other positions in theaters. Well, I mean, there's for, for many years, uh, women have dominated costume design, women have dominated stage management hires, although not at the top levels. Like if you look at Broadway right. costume designers, Broadway production stage managers, there's still not parity there. But through the regions and, and um, around the country in those two areas. but you know, I really, I want to see more and more women lighting designers. I mean, we have some extraordinary ones that we've worked with here at Forward. Scenic designers, there's just, I mean, we need more women scenic designers, mm -hmm. you know, we've composers got, got and some. sound designers. We've got more. some, but not as, not as many right. as I would like to see. And, and a pipeline of artistic leadership talents. Um, you know, one of the, the great developments that I've observed in the field in the last few years is um, the founding of uh, the Statera organization, which um, is focused on um, women, pe people who identify as female in the theater, providing with a key focus being providing mentorships and structured mentorships. Uh, they recently started a Milwaukee chapter. So I've been able to mentor someone this year. Other members of our company have had um, mentees. Um, I'm really looking forward to continuing that. Um, that mentorship is so important because we, we need an equivalent to the, the old boys club that exists in every field everywhere, right? And so um, how do we create that pathway uh, for, for young women coming up in the field? Because especially in the theater, especially for things like, you know, for, for acting, you audition. And even, even if there's, there's a lack of parity or good roles, I mean, we see a lot of parity on stages now, I think. Um, but for so many, and you can, you can walk into an audition as a young person and get, and get cast if, the, if your scene is right for the role. All these other positions are so based on who you know, who you hire as a designer. You don't come in and audition really, right? right. Who you hire as a director who you hire as a stage manager. Relationships inevitably play such an enormous role in how that work gets allocated. And so creating those mentorship relationships and that, um, that pathway and that access is so crucial for all of those aspects of our field. I'm I'm glad you brought up the, you know, the always forgotten stepchild in theater, which is, which is design. Um, you know, it's uh, a study came out last year uh, that was published in Theater Design and Technology. 29% of design positions are being filled by women. And they asked, which to me is even more interesting than the distressing statistic, they asked uh, women designers, you know, what, what were the major barriers? By far, with nobody else even close, sound and lighting design had the highest incidence of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't even talked about that. You'd like to think that we're in a point where that kind of stuff, in addition to the mansplaining and the low-level microaggressions that were past that, but we're not. Over 90% 
of women designers in those two fields had experienced sexual harassment of some kind. That was the first thing they mentioned. And the second thing, which applies to this entire discussion and women in every level of theater is childcare. You know, we live in a country which is one of the only countries in the entire world that provides no public subsidy in any way for family leave and provides no help in any way for childcare in a, in a, in a world where, unfortunately, um, women are still more often than not saddled with the predominant share of child rearing responsibilities. So until we deal with those issues, you know, and, and help change the larger context, which by the way, we've all got the right to vote now, we're celebrating <laughs> for the hundredth year, we're not going to be able to make the significant changes in those areas that I think that I think we need to. That will be a big, a big part of it. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, we, go, go ahead, ahead, Mike. <laughs> I was I was gonna say uh, that makes me think about um, the first national tour that I got to direct. Uh, I was uh, 31 years old, and um, I was I was basically remounting Michael Blakemore's Broadway production of Copenhagen by Michael Frayn. I had been the associate director for that for the Broadway production, and they hired me to to basically remount it with the touring cast. And uh, my first day of rehearsal, my firstborn child was five weeks old. (laughs) And I I basically hired a nanny who would spend the day in the green room where we were rehearsing with my son. And every, I was never so grateful for the equity break every 80 minutes where I would run to the green room and nurse my baby. And then I would, after 10 minutes, run back into the rehearsal room and we would do that all day. And then I would strap him into the baby Bjorn and get on the subway and go back home. Um, And I'm ever so grateful that those producers just totally worked with that. I'm also grateful that my son didn't decide to come later than he did. So he would have been even (laughs) younger. Um, And, you know, and he and my husband came with me when we, you know, did the out of town tech at in Laguna Beach, California. And, you know, that, that I have such incredibly fond memories of all that, but then I also think, okay, well then what came next, which was what he, he hit maybe six months old and you couldn't just strap him on in a baby Bjorn and bring him along. Now he actually needed a different kind of um, care and support. And it became much harder to find work that, um, that I could do while also, uh, while also taking care of my my son and and being his mom, and it was only a few years after that that I decided that working in New York just wasn't fitting with my life, and 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 moved back here. But I do, my gosh, I love those memories of being in that <laughs> rehearsal room and that you know work, and especially play like Copenhagen, this meaty intellectual thing <laughs> with my you know postpartum brain, and then let's go, you know. <laughs> feed the baby. No, I love that. And that's, you know, there are so many stories like that. And we've all, I'm assuming, been in rooms where we've seen those kinds of things happening and God bless the companies allowing it. And, and, you know, my hat's off to the amazing women who, who are doing that, but I shouldn't have to say amazing women, right? I mean, this is just a woman being a person, um, in a way where she's, being put in a in a in a tough position, even if it's she's got some support around her, because we're not being more sensitive as a society to these kinds of things. I mean, I was listening to this interview the other day um, with Simon Stevens and Alice Birch. Alice Birch is just an extraordinarily great 
playwright, one of the most exciting playwrights to my mind in Britain right now. And she's talking about what it's like having an eight-month-old and a five-year-old and just how hard it is to find time to write. And the part about what she said that was the hardest for me and just so moving, and she said, you know, I'm an all-or-nothing kind of person. I want to be a fantastic mother. And I want to be a fantastic artist. And what she didn't say, because she wasn't throwing herself a pity party, but my God, why do we have to live in a world where you have to choose? Especially when what you learn as a woman in those situations can feed, as we see in so many great plays. I mean, we did one last year with Mary Jane, you know, uh, uh, by, by Amy Herzog, can feed extraordinary work and teach us something about care and empathy. It's, it's just, it breaks my heart. Yeah. Anyone who's looking for um, some really inspiring stuff to read about the juggle of parenthood and, and playwriting, Sarah Rule, her book of essays, I think it's called 100 Essays. Oh, God. But I didn't I, have time to write or something like uh, that. Yes, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> many of those deal with parenthood um, and being a playwright. It's such a good read. I, scan, I remember scanning so many of those, you know, just to have them close at hand. Um, yeah. And the gift that she can then give us, that's a perfect example. Another forward play, you know, the uh, In the Next Room or the Vibrator play. I mean, I, I can think of few plays that moved me so much in terms of what they said about what it's like to be a mother and a woman in a society that doesn't really fully, despite its best intentions, best in quotes, understand what those two things are like. Um, And we need plays like that to help us all become more aware of what is blah, 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 blah. I've I've seen so, so uh, much discussion in the field, especially over the last mm, five years or so about um, a movement for support for caregivers in our field, um, as well as this movement towards gender parity. And, you know, as we've talked about before, we're in a moment right, right this minute where our field is very, very focused on the critical work of Mm anti-racism and that aspect of diversity and how critical um, that work is to our entire field and to all the fields around us. Um, but there's, but we, we are also working on our gender parity. We are also working on support for caregivers. And I don't, those don't need to cancel each other out. You know, more freedom means more freedom. More equality means more equality. And all of these efforts can happen together. They can happen at the same time. And as we know, when we think about anti-racism, we think about the demands of, we see white American theater, when we think about that movement, many of the, um, the issues that are raised have to do with gender discrimination against uh, women of color. Many of the issues have to do with the difficulties of being the sole childcare provider and having a career. Like. And so keeping our focus, we can, we can be explicitly working on anti-racism and also broadly working on how we make our field more inclusive, more equitable for everybody um, at the same time. We are, all of us theater workers are creative people with large and comprehensive brains and we can contain multitudes and we need to. Um, so well said, Jen. That's yeah, exactly really. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Well, then maybe we should stop right there. Yeah, I got nothing on that, man. Um, We will say that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jen Apoff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Uh, Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden, and you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Theater Forward, as always, with an (laughs) E-R. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And be sure to leave a stellar review. We're so grateful to have you listening, and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.